We are close to the end of our message series on the life of Jesus. The time Jesus spent on the earth as a man on his mission to restore the broken relationship between man and God. It was a mission that took Jesus three years. We've been studying it for four. And this mission is documented in four books that we find inside the Bible. These four books are collectively referred to as the Gospels, and today we're going to begin in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, if you'd like to turn there. Chapter 20 of John's Gospel. And as we pick up our study, Jesus is alive. He's conquered death, made payment for our sins, and secured eternity in heaven for those who choose to accept his gift of grace. He is moving in and out of our dimensions in his resurrected eternal body, appearing to those who love him, and he's clearly enjoying himself as we saw last week. So let's jump into the text, John 20, verse 24. It says, now Thomas, called the twin, that's what his name meant, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. In our last study, Jesus appeared to his disciples in the upper room On the Sunday, he rose from the dead. Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, was not at that meeting. And the truth is, we don't know why. But here's what we do know. When those who loved Jesus gathered together, Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up. So would you write that down? That's our first fill-in. When those who love Jesus gather together, he shows up. He promises to in his word. When those who love Jesus gather together, he shows up. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. They see Thomas perhaps later that evening or or the next morning and they tell him the good news. Jesus showed up. So he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. See, Thomas was feeling blue. He was feeling down and discouraged, so he didn't bother to go to the meeting where those who love Jesus were gathering. Listen to me, church. I am astounded all the time how easily believers, you and I, mature believers, listen to the voice of Satan when we're feeling down and discouraged. And he always tells us, don't go to church. Hey, don't don't go to small group. And I am amazed how often we listen to him. I'm amazed. And we hear reports from our brothers and sisters. Oh, man, you missed a great service. Church was great. The word was encouraging. One of those times you could just feel the Lord in the room. And because we're cynical, because we're feeling down, we've got a gripe with the church. How come nobody called me? Because we're feeling down, we doubt that God could do anything in our life. I'm glad you had a good time at church. I'm glad you felt the presence of God. I'm glad he spoke to you. It doesn't work that way in my life. Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And because we listen to the voice of Satan and doubt, we miss Jesus showing up. Don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to your spouse or your family 
or your kids. Don't let cynicism and despair and discouragement cause you or them to miss Jesus showing up. Write this down. We cannot allow doubt and cynicism to cause us to miss Jesus. We cannot allow doubt and cynicism to cause us to miss Jesus. I see people who are brand new believers do this, and I see people that have been following the Lord for 40 years do this. You're feeling discouraged? Why don't you go to the one place most likely to encourage you? Being around people who love Jesus, being around communion, being around the Spirit of God. One of the things that should strike us about the disciples from the text is that we've seen as we've made our journey through this that they were extremely reluctant to believe in the resurrection. We saw that last week and we see it again here in the doubt of Thomas. They were not in the mental or emotional place of willing the resurrection to be true. In fact, we see just the opposite. So those who would say, oh, well, they were predisposed to want to see Jesus, so perhaps they hallucinated. Perhaps stories got embellished or exaggerated. They weren't in that state of mind. What we see from them is an extreme reluctance to believe, a determination to not be gullible, to not be fooled by tales of Jesus having risen from the dead to the point where they don't believe even in the face of increasingly overwhelming evidence. I'll also mention, as we'll talk about in the coming weeks, Psychiatrists will tell you that there's no such thing as a group hallucination. It is not possible. Hallucinations are not shared between a group of people, other than maybe sports fans. This is our year. No, it's not. Verse 26. Verse 26. Although that would technically be a delusion, I believe. Verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Eight days is just including the last Sunday. So what this is, is it's Sunday evening again, a week later. And those who love Jesus are gathering together again. And here we see the beginning of the church tradition of meeting on Sundays. And the early church did indeed meet on Sunday evenings. Perhaps some of you more traditional folks will be blessed to know that we're actually meeting at the most traditional church time, Sunday evening, and this time Thomas has managed to get his butt to church. So good for him, good for him. It says, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Once again, Jesus just materializes out of thin air in their midst even though the doors are all locked. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here, put it into my side. Thomas must have thought, oh, you heard that? See, Jesus is not only alive, he not only materializes out of thin air, but he also reveals that he hears and sees everything, <laughs> including Thomas's proclamation of doubt a week earlier when Thomas thought Jesus wasn't there. And then underline this in your Bibles. Jesus says to him, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And just as I was prepping this, I just wanted to share a, a short exhortation with you. You know, in the age we live in, we put such a emphasis on being sensitive and empathetic and validating the feelings of others. 
We are far too slow as believers to exhort each other in the way that Thomas was exhorted by Jesus. You know, when a fellow believer says, I'm struggling with doubt or I'm not obeying the Lord in this area because I just don't see it working out. Heaven forbid all we offer is a, I know it's hard or I've been there too. Those sympathies need to be followed by an exhortation of, but the Lord is always faithful. The Lord is always good, so do not be unbelieving, but believing. Don't ever allow yourself to encourage a fellow believer to wallow in their doubt and unbelief. Don't you dare leave them there and tell yourself you're just being a good listener. Don't empower their doubt. Empower their faith. Don't just listen and say, yeah, that's tough. Encourage them at the end. Put your faith in God. He's always come through for you. He's always been faithful. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. It's the greatest confession a person can make, confessing Jesus as one's Lord and God. And it's the confession that the whole gospel of John has been leading up to, this moment. It's the confession that John desires every single one of his readers to make, that Jesus is God. Because we notice that Jesus doesn't correct Thomas. Jesus doesn't say, no, no, Thomas, I'm not God. I'm just a good teacher, or I'm just a guru, I'm just a spiritual guide. He doesn't say that because he can't say that because he's not any of those things. He's God. And I love that Jesus doesn't cast Thomas out. He doesn't say, well, you're through, Thomas. You had your chance. You had a three-year window. Instead, he shows up in the life of Thomas and gives Thomas the evidence he needs to believe. You see, the real issue is not whether or not a person would be willing to believe in Jesus if they have enough evidence. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not a person would be willing to follow Jesus if they have enough evidence. The Bible says even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble, but they're not saved because they're not following Jesus. The issue is are you willing to follow Jesus? And if anyone would be willing to follow Jesus if they received enough evidence, they will get the evidence that they need to believe. Jesus will get it to them. Thomas's response to the evidence of Jesus standing in front of him proves that he was ready to follow Jesus. He just needed to see it for himself. And so Jesus shows up right in front of him. Write this down. Everyone who would be willing to follow Jesus will be given the evidence they need to believe. And if you're not sure about what I'm saying, just remember the entire path that the Pharisees have followed throughout the life of Jesus. The issue there was not a lack of evidence. They got all the evidence they needed and more. The issue was they were unwilling to follow Jesus. There will be nobody in hell who would have been willing to follow Jesus if they had just received a little bit more evidence. On that final day of judgment, it will be laid bare that everyone in hell was unwilling to follow Jesus no matter how much evidence they could have been presented with. As a side note, we notice that contrary to some of the classical works of art that depict this moment, 
there's actually no indication that Thomas touched the wounds of Jesus. It doesn't actually say that in the text. He may have, but I personally think it's far more likely that when Jesus shows up in front of him, Thomas falls to his knees. I don't think that when Jesus says, touch my hands, Thomas is like, all right, we'll see about that. I think the fact that Jesus just materialized in front of him out of thin air kind of did the job for him. And he's like, no, I'm good, I'm good. Thomas would be so radically changed by his encounter with the risen Jesus and by receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that he would go on as an apostle to take the gospel as far as India where history tells us he was martyred by being speared in the back. Quite a transformation. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now underline this, because this is for you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Last week we talked about how faith is clearly a big deal in eternity. We know that because Jesus considers faith to be such a big deal for us in this life. And he'll do whatever he needs to do to grow each of us in the area of faith. And so even though we don't know quite how it works, we know that the level of faith we reach in this life will profoundly affect what we do for God in eternity. And so Jesus tells Thomas, those who believe in the future, who don't get to see me face to face, will be even more blessed than you because they will be operating in greater faith than you are operating in, Thomas. That's a staggering thing to me, that Jesus tells you and I that we are more blessed in the eternal scheme of things than one of the original disciples, than all of the original disciples, because there's a blessing for us for believing in Jesus, even though we haven't seen him face to face. As another interesting side note for you Bible students, this is actually the final beatitude in Scripture. It's not found in the Sermon on the Mount, but at the very end of John's Gospel. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. It's the final beatitude in the Gospels. And now the Apostle John will share the reason that he wrote his Gospel. Verse 30, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Of all the things that John could have written about in his gospel, the Holy Spirit inspired him to record these things to give the reader everything they need to come to the conclusion that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that about him, they may receive the gift of eternal life. And we're just gonna continue right into chapter 21, verse one. After these things, interesting, the Greek word there is metatauta, very, very good. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Tiberias is just the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee, which is up in northern Israel where Jesus had grown up and lived. And in this way, he showed himself Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Jesus has already appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem, and after that, as they think what to do next, they remember that Jesus had told the woman to tell them that he would meet them again up in Galilee. 
So they head up there to Galilee, and, and they don't know if Jesus is going to show up in one day, two days, two weeks, two months, two years. And so to occupy themselves while they wait for Jesus to show up, they go back to their old trade of fishing. And they, the other disciples, said to him, we're going with you also. And they do this. I don't think there's anything profound going on here, as, as, as some preachers will suggest. I think it, it's just that going back and doing something you're good at, something you're familiar with, is often cathartic when you're anxious or stressed out and you have a hobby you might go fishing you might go do some woodwork you might go play a sport it's just a good way to occupy yourself so these other disciples join Peter and they head out fishing it says they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night they caught nothing but when the morning had now come Jesus stood on the shore yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It could be he was too far away to see clearly or it could be that Jesus once again supernaturally prevented them from recognizing him until the moment of his choosing. Verse five, then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. Bible scholars point out that this confession is in and of itself a miracle, a fisherman admitting that he has caught nothing. Uh, usually anything close to that confession is accompanied by, but you should have seen the one that I almost caught, or you know, we've had some big nibbles, so clearly something supernatural is going on here. Verse six, and he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Again, I can't help getting the feeling that Jesus is really enjoying himself in these interactions with his disciples after his resurrection because this is so ridiculous, it's comical. Oh, you haven't caught anything? Have you tried the other side of the boat? We're, we're talking about a boat that's, you know, at its most six feet wide. Have you tried the other side of the boat? What's the lesson here? When you choose to obey Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense, you'll always end up being blessed. It may be immediate, practical blessings, or they may be eternal blessings, but obedience always leads to blessings. You can count on that. Write that down. Obeying Jesus always leads to blessings. Obeying Jesus always leads to blessings. There were so many reasons for them to say, this guy, Mr. Fishing Expert over here, and be cynical. But if they had trusted themselves instead of Jesus, they would have missed out on the blessings. Make sure that you don't let a lack of faith cause you to miss out on blessings that the Lord has for you. And what a perfect situation this is for Jesus to meet with his disciples and with Peter. Especially because this is the location where Jesus first performed a miracle in front of them and called them to ministry. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just gonna read to you, it's the first 11 verses of Luke 5, and we're gonna do a flashback, where it says, so it was, as the multitude, the crowd, pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, that's another name for the Sea of Galilee, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Simon Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let out your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. 
And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. It's now three years later. The location is the same as it was that day, and Jesus is performing another net-breaking miracle again. It's the perfect place for Jesus to reflect on the past and direct the disciples regarding their future. Verse 7, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. John's the first to remember and realize that only Jesus could do a miracle like this. And so he shouts out, it's the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, his coat, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. And this is why we love Peter. He realizes John is right. It's Jesus, grabs his coat, jumps in the water, and starts swimming toward Jesus as fast as he can. Now why does Peter grab his coat? Why does he grab his coat? It's because he's not planning on getting back into that boat ever again, ever again. Wherever Jesus is going, whatever Jesus is doing, Peter's determined to be a part of it. If you're going to follow Jesus for real, don't leave your coat in the boat. Well, maybe I should just keep in touch with him or her, you know, in case, in case the Lord doesn't provide a spouse for me. Well, maybe I shouldn't totally withdraw from those relationships just in case following the Lord doesn't work out for me. If you leave your coat in the boat, you'll go back to the boat. Leave the old life behind. Go all in with following Jesus. You'll never regret it. I've never met the person, the man or woman who went all in on following Jesus and said, you know, I'm not sure that was the right call. But I have met many who said, I wish I had gotten serious about following Jesus sooner. I've heard that a lot. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits. They were around 300 feet from shore, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus just created this food out of thin air. He can do that. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. There's actually a mini miracle in the fact that one man's able to pull that net to shore. And John, just to help us understand that he really was an eyewitness to the things he saw, gives us a bunch of details just to make sure we understand this was a real miracle. The catch happened immediately. They went from a net with no fish to a net overflowing with fish by simply throwing it off the other side of the boat. The number of fish was incredible, 153. That's John's way of telling us we counted them. It wasn't just something that looked like a lot. 
There was 153. The size of the fish was abnormal. John says their net was full of large fish. The implication is that all of the fish were abnormally large. The Greek word used there for large is megas, from where we get our English word mega. The fact that the net did not break from a catch this large was also a miracle. John wants us to know this was a verified, documented miracle, and he can tell us that because he was there. He saw it with his own eyes. But this miracle also reminds us one last time in the Gospel of John that as he was at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is not the God of just enough. He's not the God of the bare minimum. He doesn't have them catch one large fish so that they can all have a good meal. They have a net overflowing because he's the God of more than enough. He's a God of abundance. Would you write that down? Jesus is the God of more than enough. More than enough. And we saw this in his very first miracle in Cana, John chapter two, when he turned the water into wine. This was a village wedding. A village was typically uh, two or three acres, potentially, of land. Five at the most. This is a local wedding, and when he turns the water into wine, he doesn't make two and say, that's enough. He makes somewhere between 100 to 120 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. They were dancing at that wedding, I guarantee it, even if they didn't know how to. When Jesus fed the 5,000, it wasn't everybody gets a slice of bread and a little piece of fish. Share it. It says everybody ate till they couldn't eat anymore and there was still left over. When the Roman centurion asked Jesus to command that his servant be healed, Jesus said to him, as you have believed, so let it be done for you. When two blind men asked Jesus to heal them, he said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And I share that just as a quick reminder to make sure that the God you're believing in is the God of more than enough. And make sure that your faith is not limiting the blessings of God in your life. And here's what can help with that. All you have to do is you have to think, man, if I had the powers of God, how would I bless my children? Would I be like, I've got infinite ability and power, I'm going to give my kids the absolute bare minimum. None of us would do that for our children. We, we would want to bless them ridiculously. And the Bible says if you, being evil, know what it means to give good gifts to your children, don't you think your father knows so much more what it is to be good and to give gifts and to bless his children? So you can always trust that God wants to bless you as much as he can, as long as it doesn't get in the way of the most important blessing, which is becoming more like Jesus. But he is always out to bless you. Always, always, always. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. That count the third time is only in relation to the gospel of John, by the way. We know that he had actually appeared more times than that. As we arrive at verse 15, there's unresolved business between Peter and Jesus. Remember, in the hour when Jesus most needed his support and friendship, 
Peter was overwhelmed with fear and denied even knowing Jesus three times. Two of those times to a terrifying servant girl. In his final denial, Peter went as far as saying the equivalent of, may my soul be damned if I know the man, speaking of Jesus. As we mentioned last week, even though there are no details recorded in Scripture, the Bible does tell us that Peter was the first disciple to see Jesus alive, which means the Lord appeared to him, but most likely very, very briefly because they haven't yet dealt with the fact that Peter disowned Jesus. It's kind of the elephant in the room. On that infamous night, Peter warned himself at the fires of the enemies of Jesus, and now here he is sitting at a fire made by the resurrected Jesus. So put yourself in Peter's shoes. Jesus has appeared to you. You know he's alive. And now you spend over a week mulling over that reality, waiting for him to appear to you again. You you know Jesus is going to bring the issue up. And yet you cannot figure out what in the world you're going to say when he does. What do you say? What do you say about the worst moment in your life when you've abandoned the person you claim to love more than any other when they needed you the most? There's nothing you can say. Verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Jesus doesn't call him Peter the new name he had given him. Peter means rock or a stone. And Jesus calls him by his original name, Simon, implying that he hadn't lived up to his new name. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? That these are the other disciples. Because do you remember what Peter had claimed before Jesus was arrested? Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Even if everyone else deserts you, Lord, because I wouldn't expect too much of these guys, I will not abandon you. So Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? And here's the problem. Peter can't say yes after the way he abandoned Jesus. And this would have hurt Peter deeply and we'll explain why Jesus is doing this in a minute. You may be aware that in the Greek they have different forms of the word love. It's, it's really much better than what we have in our English language where we use the same word to describe how we feel about our spouse and how we feel about donuts. I love my wife and I love donuts. And you don't love those two things the same way. Let me rephrase that. You should not love those two things the same way. So in the Greek they have different types of love. The word that Jesus uses when he asks Peter the question, do you love me more than these, is the Greek word agapao, agapao. It's a love of total commitment. It's a love that puts the welfare of the other person ahead of oneself. It's a selfless love. It's the love described in 1 Corinthians 13, most perfectly demonstrated by Jesus in laying down his life for us on the cross. Jesus asks Peter, Do you agapao me more than these? Are you totally committed to me, Peter, more than the other disciples are? And he, Peter, said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Peter answers Jesus using a different Greek word for love, phileo, phileo. It's a love that's a level down from agapao. Phileo means to be a friend to, to have great affection for. It can be a brotherly type of love. That's why the city's called Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's how you can remember it. Jesus asks Peter, 
Are you totally committed to me? Do you love me more than you love yourself? And Peter answers, Lord, you know I have great affection for you. You know you're a dear, dear friend to me. See, Peter still felt a deep sense of shame. And even though he wanted to tell Jesus, yes, I agapao you, I'm totally committed to you, he knew he couldn't make that claim after so thoroughly disowning Jesus on the night of his arrest. He, this is Jesus, said to him, feed my lambs. Lambs there is a term used to refer to new believers. Now don't miss this. What Jesus has just done is he has commissioned Peter. He's called Peter to ministry. Jesus is saying, even though you feel like you can't claim to agapao me right now, I'm calling you anyway. And man, does this ever bless me. Because despite the songs we sing and the prayers we pray, if the Lord asks me, Jeff, do you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If I'm honest, the very best answer I could give would be, I want to. I want to, Lord. I really, really want to. And like Peter, the Lord doesn't reject you or I. He says, I can work with that. I can work with that. This is your next fill-in. The Lord calls the willing, not the perfect. He calls the willing, not the perfect. And Peter would go on to lead the Jerusalem church, the most prominent church in the world for years. And this statement by Jesus gives us the model of what pastoring is intended to be. Pastors are called to be under shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd over the whole flock that is the church, uppercase C. Pastors are called to care for a group of sheep. That's a part of that great flock. And Jesus' instruction to under shepherds, to Peter, to pastors is feed my lambs. Feed and nourish them. That's a good reminder that the primary duty of a pastor is to teach the word of God. And that's exactly what we find Peter doing in the book of Acts. The very best way a shepherd can keep his sheep healthy is by keeping them fed and nourished. And the only way to do that is by feeding them the word of God as part of their regular diet. You know, diet is such a good analogy in this instance because when you decide you're gonna start eating healthier, it's not like you have one meal and then you can go look in the mirror and be like, I'm transformed. This is amazing. I just had one meal and now I'm a completely healthy person. This is amazing. It's not how that works, but what happens? As you choose to eat healthy over and over and over again, as you choose to be disciplined about your diet, as you choose to also stop taking in unhealthy food, as you make the wise choice repeatedly, the day eventually arrives when you realize that things have changed dramatically and you're now healthy. And that has been my experience with the word of God. And I know it's been the same for many of you. You may not be able to tell me specific verses or specific messages or, or sermon points or chapters of the Bible that change your life dramatically, but you do know that after months or years of taking in God's word at church, 
taking in God's word at home, taking in God's word in the car, things have dramatically changed in your life. You're not who you used to be. You don't think like you used to think. You don't process life the way you used to process life. Suddenly, your spirit is healthy, you're nourished, you're well fed on the word of God. And I say all that to encourage you, keep taking in the word of God over and over and over again and the Lord guarantees that you'll be transformed. But don't expect transformation. If you're treating the word of God like the person who says, well, you know, I'll have one healthy meal a week, you know, but then maybe summer hits and I can't be expected to eat every week because I'm gonna be going away on vacation and things like that. Don't be like the person who expects eating healthy once a week or getting a Diet Coke with their meal at McDonald's is going to transform them into an athletic, healthy human being. That's not how it works. I wish it was. But that's not how it works. And the same is true with your spiritual life and mine. It's taking in the word over and over again with consistency, with discipline, transforms your life, transforms your thinking, transforms your spirit. So keep at it. Keep taking it in. Verse 16, he, Jesus, said to him, Peter, again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus asks a similar question, again using agapao, and Peter gives the same answer, again using phileo. He, Jesus, said to him, tend my sheep. Sheep just refers to believers, those who are part of the church. Jesus says, look out for them, Peter. Care for them. Take care of my church. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Now Jesus uses the same word that Peter's been using, phileo, asking him, do you even have great affection for me? Do you even phileo me? And, and this just hurts Peter deeply because the Lord has now lowered the bar. It says Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Do you phileo me? Peter thought he was safe in claiming to love Jesus with great affection, but now Jesus is questioning even that claim, and, and Peter's devastated. And he said to him, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. In the original language, Peter is saying, Lord, you perceive all things, and you know from experience that I love you. I phileo you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Write this down, believers are nourished by feeding on the word of God. Believers are nourished by feeding on the word of God. And I could do a whole separate sermon on this, but Jesus doesn't tell Peter, who's sort of the model of a pastor for us in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't tell him, Peter, then take my sheep out to do good works in the community. Not that that's a bad thing. He doesn't even say to Peter, hey, hey, then Peter, Make sure my people get out there and preach on street corners. He says, Peter, I'm calling you to be a pastor. Feed my sheep. Give them the word and care for them. That's it. That's the primary duty. Everything else flows out of that. Why does Jesus ask Peter three times? Because Peter denied Jesus three times. 
And then Jesus goes on and, and he tells Peter that the day's going to come when he, Peter, will be killed. He'll be martyred for loving him. And, and I just encourage you not to miss this. Jesus isn't being mean to Peter. Every single time he asks Peter this question, Jesus is commissioning him. He's calling him to ministry. So the message there over and over again is, Peter, even though you've really blown it, I'm still calling you, I'm calling you to be a pastor. I'm calling you to take care of my sheep. And I was going to go on and tell him that he's actually going to end up being martyred for loving him. Verse 18, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is so powerful. Peter, Peter's a wreck. He thinks Jesus has just revealed that he doesn't even have the right to claim to be a friend of Jesus. But then Jesus keeps the conversation going somewhere amazing because the point Jesus has been making to Peter is, Peter, I'm not calling you because you're qualified. I'm not calling you because you're braver and smarter and more spiritual than everyone else because we both know that you've proved that you're not. I'm calling you because I want to use you despite your faults and your issues. You're not called because you're qualified. What qualifies you is the fact that I'm calling you. That's the only qualification you need. So write this down. We're not called because we're qualified. We're qualified because we're called. We're not called because we're qualified. We're qualified because we're called. And the Christian life is not about trying to earn that calling. It's about doing your best to live up to the calling that God's already put on your life. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Jesus says, Peter, even though you don't think right now that you can even claim to agapao me, even though you don't think you can claim to love me more than your life, the truth is that you do. You're so committed to me that one day, Peter, you're gonna die for me. So forget about the past, Peter, and follow me. And in that moment, Peter is restored, not just personally, but corporately, because it happened in front of the disciples, meaning that they all know now that Jesus has restored Peter, which needed to happen, because Peter was gonna lead many of those disciples as the main pastor of the Jerusalem church. When Peter disowned Jesus, it was his courage that failed him. And Jesus now tells Peter, Peter, you're going to have the courage one day to die for me. Now come and follow me. Peter would live for 30 more years serving the Lord, knowing that whole time that he was going to end up dying as a martyr. Church tradition records that Peter was killed in Caesar Nero's circus around 67 AD by crucifixion. That's what it's talking about when Jesus says your arms will be stretched out. But at the request of Peter, he was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. What changed for Peter, it wasn't his resolve that made him brave. He didn't change his mindset. Something far more profound happened to Peter that gave him the courage to die for Jesus when the time came. He would be filled with and baptized in the Holy Spirit. He would have the power and the courage 
given to him by God to follow Jesus no matter what the cost. That was the difference. Verse 20, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following, who also had leaned his breast, that leaned up against Jesus at the supper, that's the last supper in the upper room, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So all that to say, Peter turns around and he he sees John. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? You see, Peter and John were close friends. Peter, James, and John were the inner three, the closest of the disciples to Jesus. And it's most likely out of love and concern that Peter is asking, if I'm destined to die for you, what's gonna happen to John? And Jesus said to him, verse 22, if I will that he remain till I come, what's that to you? You follow me. So Jesus says, Peter, if it's my will that John lives all the way up until my second coming, what does that have to do with you? Your only concern should be living your life faithfully and following me. Don't compare your life or your calling to anybody else's. That'll preach right there. So how come they got the calling to be able to make lots of money? How come their spouse is so spiritual? How come they don't have any health issues? How come they seem to get things so easily when I have to work so hard? How come everybody's impressed by their gifts but nobody seems to notice mine? Comparisons kill. Comparisons breed discontent and ingratitude. Every believer is being shaped by the Lord for eternity, and every believer responds differently to the shaping process. There are rough edges in my life that are already smoothed out in your life. And there are rough edges in your life that need to be smoothed out, that are already smoothed out in mine. Every believer is being worked on by the Holy Spirit to be made more like Jesus and prepared for eternity. And here's what you and I can know for sure. Everything the Lord is doing in us, he's doing for us. He's doing it for our good. Let me say it again so that it sinks in. Everything the Lord is doing in us, he is doing for us, for our good. When we get to heaven, we'll have everything revealed to us. The prayers that were answered that we didn't know about and the prayers that weren't answered. And when it's all laid out, we'll see how it all worked together for our good. And every single one of us will have the confession in heaven, Lord, I didn't see it then, but you were always good. Always, always good. Peter wasn't called to walk John's path and John wasn't called to walk Peter's path. I need to make sure that I'm being faithful to Jesus. I need to make sure that I'm following him with total commitment. I need to make sure that I'm being obedient to Jesus. Write this down. Believers are called to compare themselves to Jesus, but never to each other. Believers are called to compare themselves to Jesus, but never to each other. When you look at someone else and you get jealous or discontent with your life right now, just begin to compare yourself to Jesus, and you will inevitably quickly reach the conclusion, Lord, I don't deserve anything. Thank you for being so good to me. And that's why the Bible tells us consistently that our joy is supposed to come from what? Our circumstances? Our gifts? Our blessings? No. The Bible consistently says our joy is supposed to come from our salvation. When you stay focused on the fact that you've been saved from death, raised to eternal life, you'll have joy. You'll have peace. When you begin comparing your life to the life of other believers, all you're gonna notice in their life is the good stuff that you don't have right now. 
You won't see their struggles. You won't see the trials they're going through. You won't see the heavy hand of God shaping their life. All you'll notice is the little bit that they have that you don't. Stay focused on your salvation and you'll have joy. Stay focused on your walk. Make sure you're being faithful to Jesus. Make sure you're obeying Jesus. Comparisons kill. Do not play that game. Don't do it. Verse 23 Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? John tells us in his gospel here that the disciples misinterpreted the words of Jesus and they started spreading the rumor, oh, Jesus has made John immortal. And that wasn't the case. John corrects this by saying that's not what Jesus said. He just pointed out that if he wanted me to live until he came back again, that wouldn't be anybody's business. That's all. He's just refuting a rumor. Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. John says, you guys know who I am. You know I was there with Jesus when all these things happened. You know I saw them with my own eyes. So you know that what I've written in here is the truth. And then the Gospel of John ends with this verse that that moves me deeply every time I read it, messes me up. I don't even know how to articulate why. But behind this verse, I can just feel the heart of John saying, I wish every single one of you reading this could have seen what I've seen. I've written what you need in this Gospel, but the list of wonderful things that Jesus did, the miracles he worked, the lives he healed during those three years, is longer than would fit in any book. And however wonderful you imagine Jesus was when he was on the earth, he was a million times more, a million times more. There's a reason that children ran to Jesus. He was and he is, he's just wonderful. There's no other person that you can really use that word for. He's just wonderful. I can't wait for the day when I get to be one of those kids. So John ends his gospel by writing. And there are also many other things that Jesus did. Which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Jesus is the Lord regardless of how you respond to him. The question that matters more than any other is this. Is he your Lord? Are you willing to follow him? The question isn't do you believe that Jesus is God? The question is are you willing to follow him as your God? And like Peter, the Lord wants to use you. He wants to use you as an ambassador to represent him here on the earth. And he doesn't want to use you because your resume is so impressive and you're so overwhelmingly righteous. He just wants to use you. Because he loves you and he wants you involved in what he's doing on the earth. You and I are not called to represent Jesus because we're qualified. We're qualified to represent Jesus because he called us. No matter how bad you've blown it in the past, the Lord still wants to use you. Believe that. Listen to the voice of Jesus, not the other voice in your head that tells you you're done. Not the voice that says you've got no business talking to anybody about Jesus. If they knew your life, The Lord wants to use you. Let your confidence be in the God who's called you, not in yourself. And lastly, don't ever let doubt or discouragement cause you to miss out on Jesus. 
when those who love Jesus are gathering together, get yourself there. Get yourself there. Get your spouse there. Get your kids there. Get your family there. Make that commitment today because I guarantee whether you're doing good or having a rough time right now, I guarantee for every single one of us, there is a day coming in the future, probably sooner than we think, when you'll be in a season of discouragement, you'll be feeling down and that voice will show up. Why would you go to church? People are just gonna ask you how you're doing. Do you really wanna deal with that? Make the commitment now that when you hear that voice, you're gonna respond with, hey, there's no way. I'm going to miss out on Jesus showing up. He's exactly what I need right now. And if all you can do is sit in a chair and you can't even get yourself to sing the words of the songs we're singing, that's okay. Be in the room where Jesus is going to show up and he'll meet you. Make that decision right now that you're not going to be one of those people where your pastor goes, them? Seriously? I thought they were totally solid in the Lord. Show up to where you know Jesus is gonna be. You'll be blessed every single time. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the way that you love us. And Jesus, thank you that as we gather in your name, with all our issues, with all our brokenness, you show up. You meet us where we are. You've never loved us because of anything we've done. And you haven't called us because of anything we've done. It's always been you and and your goodness and your love and your mercy and your kindness. And so Lord, we believe in faith that as we gather here right now, your heart is to bless us, Lord. For those who are discouraged, your heart is to fill them with your joy this evening. For those who are anxious, your heart is to overwhelm them with your peace this evening. For those who are filled with doubt, your desire is to bless them with abundant faith this evening. So Lord, we simply agree that what we know about you is that you are faithful and you are good and your heart is to bless. Your heart is to bless. Father, your heart is to bless your children. We believe that. We receive that. We stand on it. And we welcome your good work in our lives this evening, Jesus. We are so thankful this Thanksgiving weekend for your goodness to us. And so Lord, as we take communion in this coming time, we just once again pause to reflect on the fact that you are such a good God. You are so good. And we reflect on what the Apostle John wrote that in just three years, the good things he saw you do wouldn't fit into all the books in all the world. That's just who you are. Goodness and kindness flow out of you because that's just who you are all the time, never ceasing. And so Lord, we just choose to rest and soak and meditate on your goodness this evening. We love you, and we pray that you'll find in each of us thankful, believing hearts this evening. 
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.